Welcome to Small Business Love, where I chat with inspiring women who are running their own successful business as they share their journey, the highs and lows and everything in between. Along with value-packed solo episodes and special guest speakers, I really hope this podcast will inspire you to follow your dreams and bring your desires to light. You are here for a reason. Today on the podcast, I chat with a beautiful long-term friend, Billy Bates. Billy and I used to fly together back in our Air Force days, and she's just had such an amazing career over all of these years, and I love that she is forever changing it up. Billy has been a VIP flight attendant in Australia and then overseas. Then she was a yoga instructor, a book author, and now she's a screenplay writer. I'm so proud of everything Billy has achieved. And this month, she has her movie being released. It's called Spirit Halloween. And while I'm not one for scary movies, I will certainly be checking this one out with my boys. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much, Billy, for coming onto the show. I'm so excited to speak to you. Thanks for having me. Gosh, we go way back. I was actually thinking about it before when we were flying together. And I met you when I first started flying. So it was probably like, let's say 15 years ago. Oh, easy. I mean, yeah. probably 20. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. Let's say 15. Let's, let's say 15. 15. Yeah. <laughs> And we were flying together in the Air Force and then you left the Air Force and you went on your own adventures and gosh, you've done so much. So just tell us a little bit about your journey and bringing it back to where you are today. Okay. Well, I'll just ramble on a bit about it. I mean, I do say flying in the Air Force was some of the best years of my life. I just, I really, the friendships we all had and the experiences to be young and I mean, you know what it's like in the military, in Australia at least, you feel taken care of. It's like it's a really good job. I don't know if I'd say that to my kids here in the States, but in Australia, it's just great. And that job we had was so prestigious and I loved it. But I did, I always, you know, I I knew I had access to an Italian passport. I used to always dream about doing the same thing, but in Europe or the Middle East even, you know, where the private private flying was. And I, when we upgraded to the BBJs from the Falcon 900s, and that's all we had, Falcon 900s, when we got those BBJs in, they, I remember these American, like, pilots training the boys in the, in the flight deck, and we were getting trained in the back on, you know, the coffee machines and whatever it is. But they would tell us these stories about girls doing what we did, flying on the, you know, the high-end private jets in the Middle East and Europe, and, and I was just you know, my skin would get goosebumps. And I was like, I want to be doing that. And they're like, they're earning crazy money and da, da, da. And I was thinking we were doing nine to fives and flying, but we didn't care. Always on call. We couldn't have a life. I'm like, they're doing two weeks on, two weeks off. That sounds amazing. So I just had it in my head that that seed was planted. And I didn't like from Australia, I used to feel so isolated. Like how would you even hear about the jobs going on? So my thought was, Okay, I've always believed this. And this is the one thing I think I credit to my mom is that she was way into like the law of attraction and stuff when we were little. And she was too blocked, I think, to have it work for her. But those seeds were planted for us. And so we always, me and my sister always had that feeling of, well, if you want it, desire it and just take steps towards that. And then, you know, doors should open. And so I'm like, I literally took a leap of faith and applied for Emirates. I did not want to fly commercial. But I thought if I'm over there, then I can hear about the other jobs. You know, I just have to get over there. And so I did. I I interviewed for Emirates. I got an Emirates position, went and flew in Dubai. And from there it was. It's like the girls talk. It's just like you ride in the mix then. Oh, yeah, company in Saudi is hiring or, you know, you just hear about it. That's what I did. And I ended up getting a job um, in Saudi, although that's a whole other story. That was kind of stressful. We had a car bomb go off my first day. And we were living in a hotel. Most girls in Saudi lived in compounds. Actually, what I was doing in Saudi initially was very much more what we were doing in Australia. It was five jets, two biggies, three smaller ones, a bunch of girls on rotation. It was cool. It was like a little, it was a good intro, a little family of girls. And we were month on, month off. And it was for the Minister of Finance. So it was more corporate than it was like it wasn't gold dripping off the jet. It was, you know, more of a corporate executive layout. Um, Because you would hear stories. Some girls like, oh, my God, there's a strip pole in the middle of our private jet and they have disco balls. I'm like, that actually sounds horrendous. Some of the stories you would tell me. It's like you couldn't write this (laughs) So many stories, though. So many books from it. I used all the rumours from inspiration rather than my own flying experience. 
And uh, yeah, so that was the flying. But yeah, it was, I did feel anxious. I was smoking a lot of cigarettes, drinking a lot of black coffee. When we were on, on standby, if we weren't in Europe or we weren't, you know, on our African, you know, tours, if we were just on standby and waiting, it was nerve wracking. Like, so I remember a car bomb going off at the Ministry of Finance, which was right next to our hotel, which is who we were flying for. So he was a target. I remember napping because I just got to Saudi. I was napping on my bed and I felt like um, I heard the loud explosion Mm -hmm. and the glass shuddered. I thought someone had kicked a football onto my glass and woke me up onto my balcony door, but it was just like the explosion, like the reverberations from the explosion. And it was just, okay. I'm like, okay, this is real. We have, and then that alone, like I, I had PTSD for years. I remember Dylan would just, my husband would just say to me sometimes like Billy in the night, I'd be like, yeah, what? I'd like startle awake constantly. Mm-hmm. Like I just was never in a deep sleep. I always had one eye open. Like I really had to tap out some stuff mm-hmm. with that um, energetic kind of um, anxiety that left with me, it left a bit of a scar. I guess when you're living in that heightened state of fear all the time, you know, for your yeah. safety as well, it's a real threat that you're facing all the time. Yeah. That's not a great way to live for an extended period of time, right? Exactly. And it was, and you're just trying to, you know, and you, you're you trying to be desensitised and go, oh, well, you know, but you would hear stuff all the time. Like I remember a French expatriate worker there just got pulled out of his car and shot in the head at the lights so, on a route we used to take to the shopping mm-hmm. centre. Um, just little things you're like, I have to get out of here. I have to get out of here. So on one hand, I was living my dream. Like that's what I put out there. And I got it. So, wow. Okay, good Mm -hmm. job. But then also maybe I want to move into something else. And I did have the Italian passport. So that was, which was part of the EU still is obviously, but so I'm like, now how do I get to Mm -hmm. Europe now? Because I would feel safer and I need to be doing that. You have to remind yourself to keep resetting Mm -hmm. those goals, you know, and not getting comfortable in that settling in that. Okay. So this is my life now. I just, how do I deal with a fear? It's like, maybe you just don't want to, maybe you just want to look for the next opportunity. This was your stepping stone to get to Europe. And you already had listened to your intuition when you were in Australia, you had that pull to go overseas and try something in the Middle East. And then you had this pull to go over to Italy and, and, you know, safeguard yourself a little bit more and go on your next journey. So listening to that intuition, listening to that pull. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, I think it's so important. I think you can tell yourself more than anyone else can, Mm -hmm. honestly. I have this little tarot card reader guy. He does Zoom tarot and he's not like predicting the future. He's almost just like a therapist, but he uses the cards. I just love it because it's like what your best friend would do. Like my writing friend, she'll say, well, I I told you that. I'm like, I know, but when you hear it from someone who doesn't know you, they don't have a personal investment in the outcome and they're using the cards. It just feels like such an aha moment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like oh, you didn't yes. have a tarot card when you told me that babe so it wasn't as plausible sorry it's, you have the scientific backup but uh but it is but I think it is just the intuition it's just your own intuition and it's true you, we have an inner compass and we need to listen to it it'll tell us mm-hmm. true north if you always yeah it. yeah so mm. you get the pull to go to Italy and what happens then well the Italian passport was part of the EU I didn't go to Italy um so again, from the Middle East, asking around, uh, you know, who are the girls going to fly for who are from London or, you know, what's the dream to get out of here? Because this is a lot of Aussie girls because they don't have the EU passports would have to like that was their final stop. But they would say, oh, my gosh, you have the EU passport. You've got the golden ticket. You can go fly. There are companies, you know. Um, And so the one I heard about that was recruiting constantly was for a lot of the Russian Ogliarks. And it's like, yeah, you just have to get your CV to this person or this person or send it directly to Mm. their head of recruiting. And I did, I got a phone call interview and then got to go over there and meet them in person. I just did that on my month off instead of going to Australia one of the months, got the job and I was based in London. And so they put me on a placement. Actually, my first placement was a disaster. I was just filling in for someone else, but it was like my test fly. And I was so nervous anyway. So while you were in London, uh, so how long were you in London for? I think about two years, maybe a little longer. I was so homesick though, mm. you know, the private flight. So that was a smaller jet when I worked for that family. So it was just me and the pilots at all times. You know, I didn't have a sisterhood. It was hard to date because, I mean, although it was kind of fine for me because I was, I was happy to miss someone for a couple of weeks and then come back 
But, uh, you know, that two weeks you're on, on standby, you know, you can't make any plans and that's fine. You get used to it. But it was a little lonely. I remember looking in the south of France going, God, this would be so good if I had a group of girls or I was on a bigger jet or so I did a couple of years. And by then I was really finding yoga um, and thinking, I don't think I can fly forever. I just don't think I was heading up for 30 and I was being more drawn to the esoteric arts. Like I was doing Zen Shiatsu and uh, Reiki and all the, on my time off, I do hypnotherapy courses. Like I was thinking personal training or yoga teacher training and like nutrition. That was always a big part of, you probably remember from in my twenties, I thought I wanted to be a personal trainer or something. And so I was kind of working towards that and wanting to go back to Mm -hmm. Australia. I was doing some writing courses and I thought I write books for joy, even if I don't sell many of them, um, and teach yoga and have run a little yoga studio on the side on like the east coast. I picture oh, where you are so would have been my dream. I wish you came back. I know, I know. Instead of my trip back on the way back I, in America, I'm doing some more yoga teacher training. I met my yes. husband or my husband's mom. Yes, that's right. And then never left. Yeah, so oh. she set you up. Dylan's mum set you guys up. Oh. Yes, because she was at one of the yoga yeah. retreats that you were teaching at. Yeah, and that was back to that whole following your inner intuition. Yeah. My instinct was when she, it was a three-week course. We we're living in yurts in Santa Barbara, in the hills of Santa Barbara. It was just a really cool experience. I was already trained, so I was treating it more like a yoga retreat. Although it was a different style. It was more flow. I did more straight hatha in my original 200 hours, but it was awesome. And you're just bonding with these people because you're all there for the same purpose. And she pulled me aside one day with a tea and was like, so I've got this son and instantly that you want to shut off. And I'm like, well, first of all, you know, who wants, needs to set their son up for dates? That's embarrassing. Da, da, da. You know, all that yeah. closed off yeah. thinking. And then it was kind of the joke. It was in our final kind of the joke amongst my yurt mates. They were like, oh, there's your mother-in-law. And it's like, shut up. I was avoiding her going around the kitchen for different routes. And then she grabbed me on the last day and she just said, look, I'm sorry, I scared you. I don't go around setting up my children, but just something told me that I needed to give you, put you two in contact, even if it's just as friends Mm -hmm. or pen pals, I think she said. And I got the goosebumps and that's always like kind of like my sign, like pay attention. And I said, you know, I've been in such yes mode. Like why would I just... Why can't he send me an yeah. email? Like, what? Sure, send me an email. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> What's it going to hurt? And sure enough, he was so charming. And we just emailed back and forth for weeks, like daily almost. He said he was out of internet at his house at the time. So he would like drive to somewhere in front of some stranger's house and try and get Wi-Fi connection to see if I'd emailed him. Yeah. And I was doing the same. I was staying in hostels and doing some online writing courses. So I was like trying to find Wi-Fi at cafes and like see if it emailed me. So it was the kind of romantic. We never shared a photo. Yes, I love that. That is such a cute love story. And so when you guys finally met, tell me about that. We finally met in, well, initially Vegas for a couple of nights and then we're going to go up and do a wine tour in like Northern California. And I think he'd had some friends there and they'd been partying pretty hard because he looked tired. And I remember thinking... Oh, nice effort. Like, are there still bikinis drying near the hot tub? Like, did you get everyone out in time before I got here? So I was like, you know what? Whatever. I'm just going to have fun. But the minute, so showered up, we're in separate rooms or whatever, but the the minute we met for dinner and had freshened up and got talking, I mean, I swear to God, by after dinner drinks, he was rubbing my foot like we'd known each other for 500 years. Like we were that comfortable together. So Babs, his mum was right. We had a very similar energy. And we, yeah, we, it's like we'd known each other for 20 years. It was the oddest thing. Perfect. So Yeah, nice. and it was done. I, yeah, we were done then. We were just too in love by mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. straight away. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so you fall in love and then you move to America. Yeah, well, I was staying there anyway. So we just dated while I was on my six-month tour doing right. I'd say the, the British pound was so strong it was three times the US dollar at the time. So I made all this money freelance and came back and tripled it by being in America. So I was just like living off this, which was stupid in hindsight. I probably should have used it as a deposit on an apartment, but I was living my best life. Exactly. <laughs> Young, living your best life. Yeah. Love. yeah. yeah exactly. Doing your writing courses. I love it. Yes. And things are cheap in the States. Like the your money goes far compared to Australia. Um, so my money went far, but uh yeah, so we were dating. I was doing all my writing courses, writing my first book. 
and we were just so in love. And um, then, you know, I we went on a trip to the Bahamas and coming back in, we got some visa grief and, uh, and you know, my flight, flight attendant passport had all, you know, my Russian stamps and my biz in Saudi Arabia. Dylan's convinced she thought I was a high-class hooker. And I'm like, shut up. Like, as if. He's like, mm-hmm. And she basically looked at my passport and she goes, you know what? Um, I'm just giving you three days entry and then you need to go back to, and she looks at my passport, wherever it is you're from. Oh. And she shuts my passport. And we were just so in shock, like the dream uh, was gone. Oh, my God. But we always joke that she, you know, she, that's why we got married, honestly. Yeah. We were yeah. like, you know what? I'm like, this is crazy. And he's like, well, we're going to Vegas. Let's just get married. I'm like, don't be ridiculous. We're going to get married for the, yeah. for a green card. He's like, why not? Like we just said that night at dinner. Like, oh, I effing love you so much. We should get married. Like, this is we're in our we're 30 now. Like, it's not like we're 18 falling yeah. in love. Like, this yeah. is it. This is it. So it was kind of like this sobering moment of, okay, uh, did we mean it? Are we really gonna do this? And we did, and we've been married like 15 years now. It was such a shock, Bills, because I remember like you were doing your yoga training and you were at yoga retreats, and when you'd come back to Australia, you're so zen and you're talking about, <laughs> you know, cleansing your system and what's the thing that you used to get? What you know when you put the hose up your oh, no, no, no. a lot of irrigation. Yes, a lot, a lot of, of irrigation. irrigation. But I could do with some of that now. Yeah. Exactly right. I remember you were telling me about that. And then you're like, so I've met a guy and then we we caught up in Vegas. I'm like, Vegas, that is so vastly different to what you've been doing. And then next minute you're getting married in Vegas. I'm like, what is this girl doing? But it's such an amazing story. And so like you to be flying over and then yogi and then Vegas. I'm like, of course, Bill's just lives the most adventurous life. It's amazing. It's so funny because I feel like I don't anymore. Obviously, I'm a mum and I'm in a different place. But then my sister came to visit and I was just in awe of her life. Like, oh, my God, you're flitting off. You're doing all this mountain climbing. And then you were in Bali doing yoga teacher training. And now you're off to Greece to see a girlfriend you used to work on the boats with. I'm like, I'm so envious. And then I'm like, oh, that was my life. That was my old life. I'm envious because I'm seeing myself, my old self in you. Yes. And it feels like another lifetime sometimes when you talk about it, right? I know when I talk about my flying days, it's like, oh, and then we were here and we did this and, you know, we pre-positioned in Hawaii and then the rest of us go to Mexico. And it's like, gosh, it actually feels like another lifetime. Or another person. It doesn't even feel real, does it? I know, because... So much has changed, you know, when you become a mom and it's such a different lifestyle and it's equally amazing, but so different to what our life was when we, you know, when we were carefree. <laughs> so you get married in Vegas and you've obviously got your visa sorted. Well, we didn't. No, we didn't do it straight away. Um, as in, we didn't do it the right way. We thought we were doing the right thing. I then did leave when I was told to. We got married. The next day, basically, mm. I left for Australia. Once we got an immigration lawyer, she was like, you should have stayed and then then applied. You wouldn't have been able to leave for a while until it came through, but then you could have been together. But we were like, we'll do the right thing. Actually, what I did, I went and rented a little apartment in Toronto, Canada, because it was only like two hour flight from Chicago. Mm-hmm. So then on weekends, every other weekend, Dylan could come visit me and we we're still together and it felt close. We're working with an immigration lawyer and she was like, oh, you should have stayed and then applied for your fiancé visa from there or mm-hmm. however, even though we're married and they call it a fiancé visa. Excuse me. So it was this whole process. She's like, okay, you're going to try and come back in on your tourist visa and then you're going to stay and then we can do all the paperwork. Don't tell them you're married and you're there to see your husband. Like, And then Dylan had been coming to visit me and he came to visit me in Australia. And so we had also just, so this is over a few months, we had just conceived with Jacob yeah and that was even worse it's like oh my god now what we're pregnant mm-hmm. and trying to get back in the country there was a big Chicago marathon that was people coming from all the over the world for he's like you're in for the marathon I'm like yes <laughs> well it has been a marathon and then yeah and then I just never left and it took maybe six to eight months to get the green card yeah and I just didn't leave the country and that was fine I mean god then I was I was pregnant mm-hmm. I got my green card, I think, before Jake was born. I definitely think working with an immigration lawyer was the way to go mm. because it was so much paperwork. There were interviews. It was crazy. And then I, I, I'm i full American citizen now when all the stuff was going on with the politics in, I think, 17, maybe it was 16. Um, but I just felt very nervous. I got some trouble coming in from a couple's trip 
where, you know, when you're on a green card and you're not full American, they always take you to another section and it's different questioning. And sometimes the, you know, if it's a smaller airport, the passport's not coming up. It's just very nerve wracking once I had kids to think, mm. what if for whatever reason I got held at customs and I could, and my children were in this country, mm-hmm. it just made me so anxious. So I'm like, I have to do it. I just have to become a citizen. Yeah. yeah. So Bills, I feel like we skipped the bit where you wrote a book because that's pretty huge. Ooh. The part where I was writing the book, I had done all my courses, but I hadn't started, maybe I'd outlined it. I think I had outlined it in London, but I started fully writing it when I was pregnant and I couldn't leave the country or work, like I didn't, wasn't a work visa. So that's what I was doing. Like that was the plan. I'll write my book. Um, and so that's where I was in Plainfield, Illinois, in those bitter, bitter colds, like sitting by the fire preggers, busting out my first book. Yeah, that's all. That's all I had. I had no friends or family. Dylan was working a lot building his business and I was able to just pour myself into that. So it was fun. So that's it was the book. And, you know, I mean, I'm by not a novelist by any stretch, but it really did. It was all, you know, looking back, it was all practice for when I got found screenwriting, which truly was what I was wired for, you know, different. It wasn't pretty on the page like novelists have a way of drawing you in with words mine was just very you know structural and to the point and almost a noveler I think in in the rewrite it was got very short like 200 pages yeah and screenwriting's like that it's like not pretty on the page because it's just a blueprint for what's you know the director brings in and the set you know it's collaborative everyone adds something to it the visuals you just need to set the tone and then they will figure you know figure it out okay so let's talk about that so how different is writing a book to screenwriting what's that process yeah. like well i mean chiclet is kind of cinematic in a sense that um well at least my book was because of the world the world and setting like lamalit i would say feels almost cinematic and even the chiclet writing courses i would do i was doing they do reference screenwriting a little bit, like strong midpoints and inciting incidents and climax. I mean, it, there was some crossover with that. It wasn't writing on, I wasn't writing War and Peace. Mm-hmm. So there was some structural mm-hmm. tightness to it, which is what screenwriting has. But screenwriting, the biggest difference when you first switch over is you can't get in the character's head. You can't just be on the page talking about what they're thinking about. So you think about that in a movie, if you had them just saying it, which kids' movies, you do do it a bit more and it can be a bit cringy. It's very on the nose, as we say. But, you know, with my adult comedy stuff, it's um, it's more subtextual. This is where the director comes in. And it's like reactionary shots, you know. Someone says something, it's how they, you know, the, the actor has to bring how they're reacting to that. They're not speaking it or you're not hearing what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a stupid thing to say. Or There is so much more play with action. Like literally it's a moving picture. So it's how people are reacting and moving in time and space. And then it's structure, structure, structure. Like you're setting up character arcs, but through action. And, you know, I'm talking about very cinematic um, commercial writing that has mm-hmm. uh, very clean um, character arcs and external plot connected. Something's actions and reactions constantly um, driving it, you know. Yeah. So do you write that in, Bills? Do you, so in a book where you would say, and when that happened, he thought this and, you know, he felt hurt. In the screenplay, do you have to say his feelings were hurt, hurt look on his face? I do. They call it unfilmables. I add more unfilmables than I should. I feed the actors. When you're first starting out, it's so funny because a lot of people that teach who don't write will tell you these rules but it's so funny because I was doing better in contests when I started adding unfillables because otherwise it's just so dry on the page you don't know maybe they're glad they're breaking up with them maybe they're do you know what I mean so I will say and I think it depends on the actor but sometimes the actor I have found and I read this in a few articles and I just clung to it the actor wants to be told rather than you know people always try and do this show don't tell so you have them moving around in time and space that in a way that might be angry but I'm like Actors are so funny about their method acting and whatever it might be. Maybe the, in their head, their character wouldn't react like that when they're angry. Maybe they just get mm. quiet and avert their eyes. So I'm not going to tell the actor how his, how he's embodying the character looks on screen. So I will just say he responds, you know, he's angry. He, he's, he simmers with anger or whatever. So I will, I will write it. I won't go into detail and I won't get into his head, but I'll tell them on the page and unfilmable yeah, yeah. of how they're responding. But 
obviously and how that comes across on the screen it transcribes is that um however they're choosing to embody the character's reaction in an angry way or a sad way or it's a bit of and not every and when it's hard breaking in and writing in development for companies that are trying to make something is so different because breaking in you're trying to appeal to the reader and the interns and the poor kids who are out of film school with like slush piles this big of screenplays that they're told to go read over their weekend for nothing like just to have get a foot in the door and they already want to hate your script so if it's already dry or they're like oh unfilmables they don't know the rules it might just get thrown in their other slush pile which is the trash but then once you're in development and it's more about other things become important to the producers and the people making it you know it doesn't it's not even an issue and it's so interesting you know to think writers breaking in and writers you know working writers are dealing with different issues yeah uh, you've got to play the game though and tickle the boxes at the time but yeah I would definitely push the envelope with the unfilmables yes okay that's so interesting so Obviously, when you think of screenwriters and you think of America and Hollywood and it's, you know, it's a pretty big deal. So how did you get your foot in the door? How did you get your scripts read? Tell me about that process. Yeah, so when I was first screenwriting, it was just common knowledge that if you didn't live in LA, forget it. So yes, I was in America, but I was in Plainfield, Illinois, like surrounded by cornfields and strip malls um it felt so far away for me still you know what is a strip, a strip mall what no, is not strip for strippers mall? a strip mall is a strip of shops off the highway do you oh. guys have that so there might be like a walmart or a target yep yep so you've got your strip mall and your cornfield yeah. so you're not, not in, LA. in la not in la by any stretch and um and being told you know you'll never and then i was a mom of little kids which was even it was a young person's mm-hmm. job you know it was just always, you know, you'd always say the young and hungry list, the young and hungry list. It's like, well, I'm hungry for this. I'm just not that young. But here's the thing. And I had to tap into what your strengths are. And I even just got a call mm-hmm. yesterday with a company that made um, the never ending story. They've made a ton of stuff, but that's the one I was excited for because being old, <laughs> I have a Christmas script that was very much inspired by that. So I'm like, I'd love to pitch that to them, you know, and she was super young and, um, but great. But I think she was surprised that I was so much older. But, you know, the thing is, and I just embrace this as a strength now. I have lived a life. I have stories because I have traveled. I have experienced the weirdest things in so many countries over the world. Some of these writers coming out of L.A., you know, never left home, went to college in L.A., and then are trying to break in. So they're telling stories based, inspired by stories they've read, and I'm telling stories of life experience and I think it adds a richness and I just really lean into that as a strength and it absolutely is a strength you've got a lifetime of layers and experience and just so much more that you can give a story just so many story ideas that aren't just like oh I read that in a newspaper oh that could be cool I should research that like I have stories in me that I'm like I have to write about that one day well even my book which originally got me into screenwriting even though it was a terrible script of course, the first five are, always are, but I'm ready. I've come full circle and I'm ready to go back and hit that and hit it hard. Like, I think I could really write it well, like a hustlers meets the devil wears Prada type, fun, young mm. adult type, glamorous journey, you know, care for what you wish for, grass yeah. isn't greener on the other side, something like that. It'll be so fun. And that's one yeah, of my next yeah. projects. But that is truly going to come from a place of like rich life experience, you know. Oh, exactly. Yes. Which the younger ones don't have, like you said, very young, inexperienced, don't have, haven't lived their adult life yes. yet. And if it was an assignment they'd been given, like, oh, they pitched, look, we want to do this private aviation kind of, you know, they're going to feed off what they've read. And I'm sorry, but the white middle-aged men that were writing flight attendants in Hollywood, it was always no wonder, you know, like Dylan said, oh, they're high-class hookers. or And it's so not the scene. Like, I'm sure it might go on, but that's not, you know, no more than nurses and doctors or do you know what I mean? Like, I just think yeah. I've got yeah. a real perspective on time. the real person, not that male fantasy of what a, a VIP flight attendant is or does or what her duties mm-hmm. are, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like not real. It's just like based on other movies they've seen, <laughs> which are all wrong, by exactly. the way. By the way. <laughs> yes. Okay. So you've written a script and you're trying to get it out there. How are you going about that? Yeah. So initially, I mean, you don't try and get your first few out. 
I don't, maybe I did. I hope I didn't. I probably did. But you're just entering contests initially. There are a few platforms. Um, like I remember there's one called Virtual Pitch Fest that felt like massive access, but you pay $10 a pitch and you get to write your synopsis and you go through the list of companies that are, and they have their interns checking the log lines going, oh, I might give it, send it. I'll give it a read. Or the thing for the $10 with that is that they have to answer you. They can't just ghost you. So that always felt good. I remember looking at my list of how many times I've over 10 years that I'd like used that service. And I got a couple of read requests over the years and then nothing really led to much. Although weirdly, one of my scripts I have option now, it's a romantic comedy, kind of 90s-esque, you know, back when they were more like theatre, bigger hooks released in the theatres, not like the edgy Mm -hmm. Hallmark stuff. You know, Netflix is trying to do stuff more like Hallmark but with a bit of drinking and a bit of swearing, you know. Um, So this was a big old school rom-com and it got optioned. But I'd met him on this submission platform where you can pay to get your material to executives. And he had requested some stuff. He wasn't what he was quite, what he was looking for. Maybe it wasn't good enough. You know, they'd never tell you. (laughs) But he remembered me and we had been emailing personally via that. And then a couple of years later, I had this virtual pitch week where I was getting on like this on the screen because of contests I've missed a step entering contests starting to do well in contests is how you kind of gauge where you're at and if you're regularly making and I mean these contests get they say there's 90,000 new amateur scripts hit the market every year just people trying to break in so you can't focus on that because that is just daunting so I would just, from my yeah, little yeah. cornfield in Plainfield, Illinois, I would just enter contests. I could just write and enter contests. I remember I would go to, with my writing friend, I met at a writing conference once, go to these little writing contests. If we made quarterfinalists, we'd go to, you know, like Austin Film Festival, something that has a big writers conference. And then you get a bit of LA. You feel like they have writers there talking on stage and giving you advice. And it just kind of fills your cup enough to go back to your little writer's mm-hmm. cave and get through another few scripts. But I would clutch onto the things that were like, I remember one, the writer of Edward Scissorhands sitting on stage saying that she felt when things work, it always feels very serendipitous, like the right things come into the path. You know, always like what we talk about, like heading in that direction mm-hmm. and doors will open. She said all her projects that came yeah. together had that feeling about it. Because she goes, otherwise, if you get caught up mm-hmm. in thinking there are so many scripts, so many good scripts, how does anything ever get made? Even once you're in, it's like things get greenlit, but then actors drop off or financing falls away. Like it honestly, most of Hollywood is just taking meetings because there's not as many movies being made as you'd think. And and then things like when you're ready, when your script, good scripts will be found or commercial scripts will be found. So just trust in that. And so that combo of trusting the process and just keep writing until you're good enough, you know, scripts where I thought I was good enough. And then thinking back, it's like, why did I waste my cold call pitch? When someone gives you a chance, fine, sure, I'll take a look. Like, good on you having the guts to approach me and then getting ghosted and thinking that script was so not ready or, you know, like it's this constant self-confidence versus having zero faith in yourself. Who am I kidding? Like out of those 90,000 writers trying to break in, why would I be the 1%, you know, this year? And that must be quite difficult. Like really then having to, you know, go internal and and have that positive self-talk to be like, that's okay. You know, for every rejection, it's one step closer to being accepted. You know, you've got this, let's keep going. Let's keep pushing. And I do think contests were the saving grace in that part, because it is a form of validation. Do you know you've got a script that's consistently Mm -hmm. even just making quarterfinals, you know, you're hitting the structural beats. I've, I've read, I think one of the most valuable things I did was I read for a company for a while. It was creatively draining. So I get it. Like you get into this mode as like, oh, they don't even know screenplay structure. Like why are they, they're they're not there. But, you know, then you have to think I was there too. So you do your best to give quality feedback. And, you know, it's even the feedbacks, this is how structured the industry is. Even the feedback's structured, like you're working off very distinct, you know, areas of consideration, character, theme, doing up a synopsis to make sure you've read it. Did it hit the inciting incident by page 12? You know, did they break into two by the 25% mark? Like these very structured that remind you, oh, this is what everyone in Hollywood's going, the gatekeepers are going by. If you think, well, this story can break the rules here because 
of blah, 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 or because the characters are so juicy, they need more introduction. You've got to remember, not the person reading it. They're not going to give you that leeway. You have mm-hmm. to hit those rules and beats. So again, off on a tangent, I'm so sorry. But the contest circuit, it was validating. That was a form of validation. And then like I won Nashville with a script, the film festival, the family category. And that was just an amazing feeling. Like that whole script and that that whole contest circuit scene which was weird. It wasn't. A, it was a family script, and I'd been writing very um, raunchy female comedies at the time, which were doing well. But like, they everyone was kind of writing them. Family um, was the one that was doing the best on the contest circuit, and um, I don't know. It just like like what that lady said. That I can't think of her name, but the Edward Scissorhands writer was like, well, when when it's right and it feels like it hits, like it just feels like seren- something serendipitous is going on, where it's just. Mm-hmm the next step, the next step, someone's going to call. I got two cold calls after Nashville from producers. One had a connection to the Gremlins director and was like, you know, we want to get a shopping agreement. He's would be interested to attach himself. But then I also got a paid opt that was going to be for free, but you know, you've got to kind of give up a little bit, you know, if he was a young producer Mm -hmm. trying to get his foot in the door. And the other one was a paid option. And that's who I went with Um, this small, a very small production arm, but of a bigger company, but they were just, they didn't have a name yet. They were just starting up and they had their interns on a hunt for low budget material with high concepts mm-hmm. that, you know, were non-WGA writers because they wanted to do it so low budget, almost the hallmark model, but for genre films. And so it just, again, it was just like the, I had the perfect script for what they were looking for. And I think the best mm-hmm. thing about being kept in my little cornfield bubble <laughs> was all I could do was write. So I just had a lot of content. All I could do was write from there and just, okay, I'll just keep writing. So I just always felt like when I was ready, I had things, not everyone's looking for the same stuff. Oh yeah, I've got a rom-com. You know, I think there's this idea and it's still strong. And I noticed it now that I'm wrapped, it gets a little harder to position me in the market where it's like, oh, she's my rom-com writer or she's my family film writer. You know, you get boxed in because it's easier for them, but it's also easier for you. Like how do they market your brand? Like what do I have? That, like, I've got everything. I've got I've got a historical biographical picture. Like I've got so much interesting stuff. But when you're just on your own and you're not wrapped in, I'm not having to brand myself. I'm just trying to sell scripts. It's better because oh, yeah. you have a rom coms. I have one of those. Oh, I've got a family film. Yeah, yeah. historical <laughs> westerns. Here you go. Like yeah, you want a documentary? I can look <laughs> one out. Oh my gosh, Bills. Okay, so the script that got picked up. Was that your Halloween yeah, script? Yes, so that was the Halloween script. It was a totally different beast. And mentally I had to like let go. It was definitely ske- the original script that was winning all the contests, skewed much older, had a lot of cheeky like older teenage bands. I had a very complex backstory for the spirit and like the steps needed to put it to rest, like a, a complex kind of mythology, I would say. The company who optioned it, well, like we're doing this model where we're doing films. It was a three to five million film. Let's say even without name actors, it was like just budget wise with the set pieces is what it probably would have been at, which in the industry is still considered a micro budget, by the way, under five million. But they're like, we want to write this down for streaming, like a little like streaming holiday film um, under a million, like closer to 500,000. And I was thinking, hey, sorry, my dogs are going crazy, but um. And my heart sank to start with because it was already so low budget, but to be good and then to write it down. But I'm thinking, you know what? I'm not in a position to be fussy. Someone wants to make something I have. I have to take. And this was a paid gig, A paid gig. Yeah, exactly. So to option it, they give you 20% of what they're offering to pay for it. And then if it gets, when it goes into production, then you get what they agreed to pay you for it so it was still very low it was okay. below industry standards even for a streaming movie actually maybe it was decent for a streaming. I wasn't being fussy I was just so happy to have someone want to make my stuff. exactly yes at that point you need to have that first credit right to get in the door and get the experience of dealing with professional note givers and how fast they want you to turn around notes mm-hmm. and that's a whole other story so then you've got this whole all the time in the world when you're writing for yourself and you can be thoughtful about dialogue and choices and story choices and then when you're getting notes thrown at you and they're wanting quick turnarounds you're just box ticking and you're just using serviceable choices and 
and lost all the mythology. Dialogue had to be dialed down for age. They wanted to skew much younger, which is why also the mythology, not just for budget, but it just skewed for more an older crowd. Um, so it's like, I'm like, okay, whatever you need, whatever you need, doing the process. And then it just sat for a few years. Their goal was to get co-producing partners mm. and then make it together. Again, very low budget, but they weren't just fun. Like no one's just funding films. Like no one has, mm. unless you're China, no one has the money to just fund films. So everywhere, that's why you'll see like three to five different production companies at the start of a movie. They're all just putting out, I'll put in 200,000. We've got 200,000. Yeah. We'll get that back first. And if it makes money, um, so that was that process. It sat for a while. In the meantime, I had, you know, my rom-com was being optioned. I did a couple of assignments for people. I did a little Christian romance for Pure Flicks, which was odd, but they got bought by Sony Affirm. Like, it's just, I was working. Things weren't mm. getting made, but I was working. And then COVID hit. And again, I was still working. It wasn't bad for me. That was a good time for me to, people were reading scripts then. They weren't making films. So a lot of read requests. Um, I felt I felt like a working writer at this point. And then right before my second option, you know, because they renewed the option on the Halloween script, they said, I thought, oh, they're just not going to get this made. They haven't found anyone who got the concept or mm. wants to do it. Two companies came on board right before the option was up and they were Nashville-based boys and it, it came together very quickly from there. I was able to write a little bit more of the backstory of the spirit back in, um, but at a very streamlined version for a younger crowd. And I think it was stronger for it, especially for the age we were going for. Really like eight to 12, like that real young PG, mm-hmm. just scary. Like you say the trailer looks scary. It's really not. There's a couple of moments. There's a couple of moments in the movie, but they're spread between just the kids' banter and experience and there's jump scares for sure, but um, it's a gateway. It's gateway horror. It's definitely, um, yeah, I, well, you'll see it and you tell me. I know, I can't wait to watch it. And I do not do scary movies. Oh yeah, you'll be fine. I don't do, I really don't do horror anymore. I did a lot when I was younger. I really don't. This is definitely PG through and through. And so this is, I'm going to jump stories here, but um, they decided, because they had a very strong marketing team, the guys that came and were you know, we need to have a role. We need to get some big names that we can at least yeah. sell in the poster. Yeah. yeah. The, kids mo- the kids are the core of the movie. But, so, you know, I've got Christopher Lloyd and Rachel Lee Cook, but she plays the mum. So I had to beef up their roles. They didn't even exist, basically. But this is like days before it's getting greenlit. So, like, this is when I talk about serviceable. I'm like, half of Christopher's voiceover for the spirit was there wasn't even a director, let alone a writer present. They were just oh making gosh. it up in the, it's like, oh, I'm, I hope we don't do his fans a disservice, like cringe. Sorry, he's the actor from Back to the Future. Yes, that's Christopher Lloyd. He's amazing, yes. he's a legend. And um, I was just like, gosh, with again, it's always about, it's always budget or time. Like with time, we could have done so much more for him mm-hmm. for, with all of it, to be honest. And, you know, I, I've just, I'm using this as a stepping stone. The first time I watched it, I cringed a little bit. Just because the budget had gone down so much, but even dialogue that, you know, right, having three companies throwing changes at you and things are getting changed in the motion, you just, it becomes that box ticking. Okay, we mm-hmm. have to meet deadlines, have to, this has to change, this scene's being changed, location change. And then in, on top of that, it's on the page, it's stagnant. You want to be, I think I will always fight my contract, either be on set or even just be at the table read with the kids. Mm-hmm. It's a moving picture. The way people speak when they're moving in time and space is so much different. And to have that come out more organic, Mm. you could hear it straight away. Or you know what? I'm just talking out loud to myself here. Even going to the theatre department at a kid's school and saying, hey, pizza and soda on me, like let's do a table read because it's so different. Mm -hmm. So that was hard for me because, and I have this saying now, I've taped it on my desk, whatever whispers at you on the page will scream at you from the screen in surround sound (laughs) because if it's already bothering you a little bit on the page but you're like oh okay we'll get to that or the director might fix that on if it's not working on the set and then it's like okay this is too late now this is filmed and it's like no one else picked that up it bothered me but I didn't do anything about it it's like lesson learned gonna scream at you from the screen so yeah there's there was some yeah I wouldn't say regrets but just lessons learned through this whole process And I think, you know, to you, you know, there might be parts that are cringeworthy, but that's because you've been with the process. Obviously, you wrote it from start to finish. But for anyone else just watching it 
for the first time, it will probably look amazing and entertaining and perfect. So that's really hard when you're critiquing it from something that you can, you know, something that was bothering you that you're now seeing or the way that you've written it, they may not have portrayed that. So Bill's from the initial script that you started with that first got accepted to how the script ended up, vastly different? Not story-wise. I was Other than the things I mentioned, not vastly different. The intention and tone is there, especially once we embrace, because I was either going to skew younger or skew older. I wasn't convinced in the early stages. Once we committed to skewing younger, Yes, definitely embrace that whole, you know, like low budget goosebumps, like shows of the 90s, not Mm -hmm. the movies, which are very big budget and glossy, but, you know, that kind of campy 90s goosebumps episode type thing. And with a lot of heart, like really trying to hone in on the kids' friendships and that idea, Mm -hmm. which is really the heart of the story has always remained the same. This idea that growing up might be just as scary as the monsters you're facing. That's kind of how I feel like movies of the 80s and early 90s kind of honed in on that. It was important to me, you know, as a mom of boys and they had an amazing friend system in the Midwest um, that we haven't been able to recapture. But, um, you know, the backyard and beside us all had young boys and they were just playing our backyard without fences and they were going through stuff together and growing up together. And I, it was really a big inspiration. Like we were moving at a time Jake had already established good friendships and it was Mm. sad for him. And it was sad for him trying to establish that again. And not that I used that, just I used the sadness as inspiration for, well, but that is change. And I went through that and change is hard. And that was really what was anchoring the entire movie is that learning that um, part of growing up is accepting change, you know? Yeah. So that stayed the same from beginning to end. And I think the director got that. And we had some talks offline about, you know, what drew you to this and okay, we don't have a big budget and this is not going to be the script. It could be if we had 30 times the budget, but if we can capture the heart enough to have enough of it, probably there's going to be people that hate it. I just know that also think it's going to be bigger budget and it's not. So there's just things that get missed. The third acts, cut a lot you know there's just things that are missed the kids could only do one shot takes at times because they were just running out of time and budget um but the people that get it and see it for what it is and know that you know it's a super low budget if we got a budget for a second like the ceo of spirit halloween loved it he thought we captured that essence of halloween so fun it's spooky type thing he's like oh let's talk about a sequel so if we had real budget to work with and could do it properly and really have the kids on set as long as we need them and get them to take as many takes as as it takes to get it right. I mean, we could do something super special. So maybe I'm always looking for like, why? I do think everything happens for a reason. Maybe that's it. We need, it's going to have a campy cult following. It's going to have haters. And then I think a real campy cult following who I think might watch it every Halloween, you know, share it with their kids. There are horror fans that know horror is too hard to take their kids to. But this is that gateway. It's their first spooky film that feels safe enough that, When it's done, they feel good, not like I can't sleep with the lights off tonight, you know. That was what we were trying to capture. Oh, my gosh. And I love that it's got a message as well, like that nice undertone. And so were you on set when the film was being made? No, I wish. And the director and I have talked about this, you know, saying something. It's like, oh, there's going to be silence from here to here. You know, it's just different when you're moving around once you've got your space Mm -hmm. established. So we both said he would always say, I need to have a writer on set. And I say, I will always ask to be on set in my contract going forward because it's constantly moving and changing. Okay. No, fair enough. Another good learning experience, though, to have that in your contract, like you said, that you will set and be able to do tweaks in real time. Definitely. And so Spirit Halloween comes out this month. Well, it's in very limited theatres. And this was another thing. I'm like, it's a streaming movie. I don't know why they're putting it out in theatres, but it's cute um, that they are. They're just doing a limited regal run. So I think it might be in like 30 theatres in certain states. That's amazing just for the next week and then it's going direct to streaming so it can be purchased on video on demand starting October 11th. Apple, Amazon Prime. Okay, October 11th. And is that in Australia as well or just in America? I don't know. I don't know who's got the international rights. I know Canada, excuse me, maybe parts of Europe. I do feel it might be Australia too, um, but we'll have to wait and see. I won't know till closer to the date. Mm. And have your children seen the movie? Yes. So, um they saw an early an early link the director sent me and we watched it at home 
And then we just, Jake and I, my eldest, flew to Nashville for the Nashville premiere because they're Nashville-based companies. So they did like a little premiere screening for the crew and families and uh, festival goers. So that was fun. And then prior to that, we were at a Halloween store. Uh, We did like a QA. and a Me and the director teamed up and then two of the kid actors teamed up. We did like a QA and a at the Spirit Halloween store, which was so fun. Um, So it was a good trip. It was a good trip. It was great. It was actually showed better on the big screen than I thought. I'm like, I was dying. Just knowing like $900,000 movies don't go to the theatre. Like it's, they're not made for it, you know. But I will tell you the director and his team did such a good job. It looks good. Like they've done, they are so good at what they do. And they were able to bring even the director, like David Pogue's wife, Carrie Ann, she was a set dresser and I think set decorator for years before they had kids. She worked on some big name stuff in Nashville. They like, they just rallied. They got they you know, certain things in the script, like there's this animatronic gypsy witch lady and they couldn't find one and they didn't have enough time because, you know, it's that timing thing, like 21 days to shoot and it got approved and then they were filming three weeks later or something crazy and trying to cast. I mean, it was just a scramble um, trying to get it filmed before leaves fell off the trees because it was already winter by this stage. <laughs> Fall was nearly over. So, so many things. They just rallied and they made stuff by hand. They made the book that's in that's in Jake's room, you know, the, the horror encyclopedia type thing that he refers to for information and they made it by hand I mean it's just crazy people just pulled together and got it done and they added such production value with their effort and I just I couldn't be more grateful for the team yeah they did a good good job and so they were talking Mm. about a sequel already we got a personal email from the CEO of Spirit Halloween and um and he just he said he loved it and it was so nice to hear from the you know, the person whose brand name we took on and had to do justice to while, you know, as soon as you say, oh, it's got Christopher Lloyd and Rachel Lee Cook in it, you're thinking, oh, big budget movie. And it's not. And this was the constant, you know, it's a constant dance between creatives and me and David thinking, well, we need people to know what this is. This is a small indie film, you know. What it took to get made was all the struggles that any small indie film has. And then the producers wanting to get their, you know, obviously, obviously their money back and then and then some. So they're making it feel bigger than what it is. And I think they, I don't think they did this on purpose, but I think it was released at, at PG-13 initially, which is the wrong crowd to be drawing. They're going to hate it. It's PG. And then the people that are PG, they won't take their kids to it. So little things like this constant struggle between wanting to tell people what it is and so they can appreciate it for what it is and this wanting to make it feel bigger than it is so we get more bums in seats. And that's just the industry. It's always a creative and business side struggle. And learning to accept that's been hard, but a really interesting experience as well, you know. That's so exciting, Billy. I'm so proud of you. And so what's next? Where to from here? Well, I already have a, a wee little Christmas film filmed that will be just a streaming. Um, that was just an assignment I wrote around the same time I was filming this. It might be coming out on streaming this Christmas. I have a couple of other assignments that are just still at the script stage, but they're seeking out producing partners. Now one is a spy comedy and one is a like almost like a hocus pocus type vibe, witchy kids, another family Halloween film. Um, super low budget so it's just it's always a struggle it's always you're not yes. having scripts thrown yeah. at you or movies thrown at you it's just a, it's a pro constant process you know you talked before about being pigeonholed into romantic comedy or you know children's movies but you sound like you're still dabbling in all different genres and so that's exciting that's amazing yeah so far I am. Um, and the meeting I had yesterday, they'd actually sent my stoner comedy to them as a sample, um, which was interesting. So she got on a call with me based on that. Um, and it's a heist stoner comedy with two young girls as, at, at the helm. Kind of really um, goofy fun. Uh, but yet by the end of the call, we were talking about, they were venturing into family films and did I have any ideas and I'm like let me send you my Christmas pitch (laughs) which was my never-ending story and so that got me in the door but then my Christmas stories what they were looking for if I was just doing stoner comedies or you know r-rated comedies 
I wouldn't have yeah. had anything to give yeah. her that day. So, oh, if you think of anything, that's been touched. So I am still dabbling in everything. And so far it is working out for me because I think with streaming becoming such mm. a competitive marketplace, um, everyone's trying to get into the streaming game, but they're always looking for content. So the more content you have and the more variety of genres, I think it, it's shifting. It used to be in Hollywood, you have to really brand yourself, yeah. but everything's shifting, even they're doing feature level budgets. Netflix has been, I know other places are doing the same, direct to streaming stuff, you know, um, that may never hit the theatre. You know, the, the market and the yeah. model is changing. So it's just curious. I'm here for it. Maybe I was ahead of my time. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> and nice that you get to um, diversify what it is that you're doing and you're not pigeonholed, which is great. Yeah. Oh, I do. I started to feel repetitive on the page. I remember doing two back-to-back almost Hallmark style movies. I'm like, oh, it's the same character in a different dress, you know, like to be able to switch voices to like a raunchy kind of cheeky female-centric comedy and then go to a sweet family film. I mean, it does allow me to breathe in between. I like that. I'm... Yeah. Oh, it'd be so good. So much better. Because you've got it all. Mm. So then you can pull some different experiences to create an amazing story. And so having had a movie filmed and produced like you have now, is that going to open some more doors, do you think? (laughs) Well, um, it should. I mean, it proves you can work the process um, and get something from beginning to end. I mean, it should. I mean, it's good. It's good, even if it doesn't do well. It is still good. I, it's definitely good to have a produced credit. I don't know if I will then apply for the Writers Guild. Some people only want to work with Writers Guild. That's um, the association. It's the, like out the Writers Union um, because it proves that, yeah, they've got produced credits and it proves they can do the process. And some writers just don't. Some writers might have great material, but they cannot kill their darlings or they cannot take notes well. Or they get very protective. They're hard to work with. We are in a bubble a lot. So we can, writers can be weirdos. I often think like I, my, I have to work on my social skills more because being in the room is, and pitching is such a different, it's a different skill set. And you have to have both. Uh, as you can see, like I always go off on tangents, like stay on point, sister, stay on point. But um, <laughs> it's tough, but I'm learning. But, you know, as long as you're not hard to work with, I'd say that was the more important thing. So if you already have produced credits, that proves, oh, she can work, you know, you, people know in the industry more than audiences, they just know how hard it is to get anything made, how hard it is to get something half decent made, even if it started with a great script. It's so many factors come into it. So, yes, it definitely helps to have those credits. Yeah, I don't know. I have to talk to my manager about this. I'm on a fence right now, but it's all just happening now. I almost said, I said to when I first met with my manager, I'm working with Zero Gravity Management right now, and they're good for advice. And, you know, they kind of just said, what are you hoping to get out of management or what's your next step? And I said, obviously, eventually I'd love, like I'm working on my big budget, $200 million disaster film. I said, I know that doesn't, I don't get there from Spirit Halloween. I know that. I get that. I said, so what would be the next step? Like, do you guys see? I said, I, I, I have a couple of companies I write for and I love that relationship. Like, what is a couple more? What about a couple more? And it's like they're doing three to five million dollar films instead of 500,000 to a million. You know, just yes. that one little step up. Same scene, but higher budget. Like same even movies. Like I love that the companies I'm running for now, they let they let me play in different genres you know, spy comedy, family, um, Christian romance, straight rom-com, whatever it may be. Um, I feel creatively Mm. I have enough variety. So, but what does the next level up from that look like? And I think it's just more budget, honestly. At a certain point, more budget, you know, in in the hundreds of millions means something completely different. But at this level, it just means being able to get the Mm -hmm. entirety of the story film sometimes, you know, as opposed to, oh, we've only got a 19-day shoot let's cut half the third act and we can't leave the house or, you know, we can't like, remember there's, you know, so a couple of massive set pieces in the original spirit Halloween that would have made the third act feel so much bigger. Um, and, you know, that's the thing people leave with the third act, but again, we did the best we could with within the, the boundaries of um, the restrictive boundaries, but just thinking, wow, you know, how would that have looked with a few million dollars or so that's where I'm at. We'll see. And I'm hoping those doors will open. I mean, I'm, 
getting some meetings in that realm, you know, that slightly bigger budget realm and some good rapport with some execs. So it's all relationship building at this point. And then when they have something and they think of me, it's like, oh, let's get that writer's take on this. So yeah, good. Yeah. And so a bigger budget obviously means, you know, more tech, bigger sets, more, just more money to splash at making it fancy. Is that what the bigger budget um, gives fancy, you? Fancy, but even shoot time, to be honest, like this was such a short shoot time. You know, the actors have to work within, the kid actors were SAG, that's their union. So weirdly it was, they were doing everything on low budget production wise. And then, um, the actors, kid actors under 18 can only work five hours a day on set. So they're already, so they have to do five hours of school and this, and it's good for them and they have guardians. And I think that's healthy because we've seen the early years, like some of in our era, the kid actors would mm-hmm. go off the rails. They can't work. Like we work too much as adults. Imagine a kid just around that, around adults, yeah. just being on all the time. It has to mess with your head. So I actually like that, but it is restrictive if you can't do a six week shoot, you know, and you're doing like a, let's get this done in a month. Uh, more equipment uh it's really shoot time obviously the look but it's shoot time and and story like shoot time relates to story so oh we haven't got enough time to shoot these other two sequences so we're gonna have to cut them out and then you're trying to you know make this line work with something that didn't happen like I'm just gonna say this there's a line in the story in the beginning about um his little sister comes in and mentions and it was a complete setup for a payoff in a version where they needed to gather bones to help put the, the remains of the the body of the spirit to put him to rest. And so it's a setup and it sounds very on the nose um, in the beginning, like, oh, I'm sorry, your dad died of bone cancer. And it's like, oh, that's very to the point. And you, you could argue that it's like, okay, little kids say weird and awkward things because she's only five, the little sister who says it. But it was more so it stuck in your mind not to be awkward, but because that's the aha moment later on when it's like, that's what we need. When they get, you know, the recipe to put the spirit to rest, that's the one thing because blood's made in the bones. Oh, so maybe we need the skeleton, you know? And so the second half gets cut, but then there's that hanging, you know, set up remaining. And there's little points like you audiences probably won't notice, but to me, there's these little or other way around um, payoffs that were left in, but the setups had to be cut because, Mm. you know, for whatever reason, that's budget because when you have budget, you can tell yes. the entire story without having to make, oh, where do we shortcut? Where do we cut? What are we not going to be able to film today? Because we can only do, we've got five hours with these kids and they're going home tomorrow. Okay, that makes sense. So what advice, Billy, would you give to anyone who wants to start out as a screenwriter, whether it's, you know, straight out of school or perhaps later on in life? What advice would you give? Honestly, um, read scripts, watch movies. You can find scripts online. Um because you have to get used to that. It is different. And I think the first script I read was Pretty Woman. And I was like, wow, that was so dry. How did that turn into that movie? Um, But something clicks after you read enough scripts. Um, You get it. You're saying, okay, they're setting up different things. It's dry on the page, but that was so well done, how they anchored character in every single sequence. You just start, it comes you have to read scripts and you have to watch movies and preferably watch scripts of the movies Mm. you're watching too to see how much it how it translates onto the screen um and then I would say write scripts Mm. write them start writing write that first one you know they do say in the industry it takes seven to ten years or seven to ten scripts I think it's seven to ten scripts to be honest um even for me uh I mean I hit my stride Spirit Halloween was script five or six in my fifth year of writing but, you know, it takes another five years to get traction and get made. And then it was developed to pieces after that, you know. So it is such a process. Just write and read scripts. Writing the scripts is the most important thing. You'll and get feedback on it. Like there are you can get coverage or give it to friends who maybe done some screenwriting, too. But mm-hmm. feedback, feedback, feedback. And learning that craft. Yeah. Okay. And so, Billy, with all the different career changes that you've had over the years, over your whole adult life, is this it for you now? Do you think screenwriting is your comfort zone? It's where you're going to stay? I do. I do. I mean, who knows? There may be some yeah. there's some directing in my future. We live in this magical winter wonderland here in Telluride. And I often, whenever we have off-season, it's so small though, off-season it shuts down and I'm like, 
I've just walked onto a Hallmark Christmas set. Now that I'm getting into big budget stuff, maybe it won't be Hallmark, but I just know there again, it's that hungry for content and I could film those in a couple of weeks. So who knows, maybe producing, directing down the track, but my kids are little. Writing is all I have, yes. can have on my plate right now. Screenwriting's it. I found, yes. my, I found my calling. Oh, I love that. I think directing can be a natural progression too for a writer. I love David did such a good job. And this is rare because I didn't feel it in the Christmas script I wrote, but his interpretation of what was on the page and his visual, like we sh- visually is exactly how I pictured it. The, the mood and the tone and the aesthetic, even the kids he chose, like who he cast. I know some of the companies were going for a bit more polished Disney actors and no, they needed to be, they needed to figure out like real kids who could have been friends, your neighbor's kids, you know, like, he nailed it all. I was just, it was so seamless. I was just so grateful. Mm. I would love to work with him again in the future because I think if you can find a director that shares your vision or sees how you see it in your head, it's very hard to translate that always. People can interpret it however they like. But I do feel like I've always heard writers say because they have so many situations in the opposite where it's like, oh, my God, mm. that's not how I envisioned it at all. And that was supposed to be a comedy, which is like this. And you filmed it like a romantic drama cringe. Like that's just, it pr- provides a different experience. So I think a lot of writers get into directing because they just feel like they're the yeah. only ones who can translate their voice to the screen. But I, I'm putting it out there that I just want to meet directors that I'm not there yet. I just want to meet directors who share my vision and I've got a handful that I'm meeting and it's, it's great. So I, I'm happy mm-hmm. to just collaborate at this point, but who, who knows, knows what the future brings. Oh, well, Billy, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I've just watched you over the years doing all these amazing things and to have a movie coming out is so extraordinary when, you know, you've been at this craft for quite a few years now and you've, yeah, you've done extremely well. So congratulations on your movie coming out. Can't wait Thanks, to watch honey. it. And um, is there anything else you would like to share before we wrap things up? I don't think so. Just I miss you. I need to get back to I I say next script I sell, I'm going to buy an apartment on the Gold Coast. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Don't worry. I've got a few few areas marked out for you. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I'll pop your website in the show notes. And where else can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, Billy Bates One, I think at Billy Bates One. And Instagram, I'm dabbling in uh, Cinematic Story Angel. I will be posting some stuff to do with the movie when it comes out. But uh, yeah, that's probably it. I'm not that active on social. All good. All good. Well, I'll pop those details into the show notes. And thank you so much for coming on the show, Billy. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you, gorgeous. I miss you. Take care. Today's podcast was brought to you by Coco Collective, an online boutique of coastal inspired handcrafted rattan furniture pieces and homewares. If you would like to find out more about starting an online business or growing your online business, be sure to check out my coaching page, kyliecrossman.com.au to find out ways that we can work together. So thanks again for listening and have yourself a beautiful week.